This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you do. Let's pray together. So Lord, we, we pray for you to do what only you can do now as we open your word. We pray for your spirit to work through your word in our lives today. Lord, you know the situation of, of every single one of us in this room. And, and you know what needs to be done in our hearts and lives today. And so, Lord, we, we do pray that we would be hanging on every word of your scripture. Lord, this is a, a, a difficult text in many ways that we're looking at today in, sec, in First Timothy 2, but there are such beautiful, powerful things that are here, and it's in your word for a reason. And there are deep riches and treasures for us to mine in the scripture today. And so, Lord, would you speak and have your way in our lives right now as we study your word together. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you are um, new today, we are in the midst of a series on 1 Timothy called Fight the Good Fight. And so uh, what we're doing and what we typically do here is we're walking through a book of the Bible, uh, verse by verse. And so one of the good things about studying the Bible that way is that uh, we can't avoid difficult texts. And we don't want to avoid them either because they're in the Bible for a reason. Um, and there are beautiful things that are there that we don't want to screen out. We want to dig into them. And so that's what we're going to do uh, this, this morning. There are uh, lots of things here that are uh, countercultural for sure. Um, the, the last few verses in 1 Timothy 2 are often used to portray the Apostle Paul as some kind of a misogynist, a woman-hating man, that kind of thing. Nothing could be further from the truth. And I say this as a husband of a wife that I dearly love and as a girl dad of two precious daughters. There is no movement in history that has done more to elevate the value and the dignity of girls and women than Christianity. And probably no, two, no people in history other than the Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul that have done more to elevate the, the, the value and the dignity of girls and, and women. And so I want you to stick with me here this morning because there are some treasures here that I think maybe you, you might see for the first time or see it in a different way than what you've seen it before that we're gonna dig into today. So um, this passage is really about worship and I wanted to preach all of chapter two as a unit because the theme that ties all of chapter two together is the theme of worship. He's talking about the public worship of the church. That's what unites all of this chapter. And so in John 4.24, Jesus says to worship in spirit and in truth. That's what we're going to talk about today. So what do we see here in chapter 2? Follow along in your copy of God's word. 
Paul says, first of all then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. For this I was appointed a herald, an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and argument. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess to worship God. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. But she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. So this afternoon, there's going to be a slate of NFL games and uh, I will be watching at least one of them. In fact, probably more than one of them. <laughs> Football is one of the things I really like about this time of year. Well, what defines all of those NFL teams is that they play games. It doesn't mean that they cease to be a team when they're not playing games. No, no, they're, they're a team during the week when they're preparing and practicing, but what defines them, kind of the hub of what they do, is that on Sunday afternoon or Sunday night or maybe Monday night or now on Thursday night, is that they actually play football games. Well, it's kind of like that with the, with the church. The word church in the New Testament kind of carries the meaning of assembly, now, it's not that we cease to be the church when we're not assembled together for worship. Of course we're the church. All throughout the week as we do ministry and as we bear witness at our school or on our job or wherever we are, we are the church wherever we are. But the hub of what we do as a church in our life together is that we, we gather, we assemble ourselves together for worship. So it's not surprising that as Paul is instructing Timothy on how to help this very troubled church at Ephesus, that one of the first topics that he takes on here is the, is the, the worship of the church. That's the theme that unites all of chapter 2. So we see three things about worship here. First of all, praying in worship in verses one through seven. So let's check out verse one. He says, first of all then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone. So Paul mentions four kinds of prayer here. 
But the emphasis in verse one is on that last word, everyone. Or your translation may say all people. He says you're to be praying in your worship for, for all people, for everyone. Now, that theme of all, all people, everyone, that winds its way through the first seven verses of this chapter. Uh, I want you to direct your attention to the screens for a moment. And I want us to see all of verses one through seven and see how this theme of all people, everyone, just kind of winds its way through these first seven verses. So in verse one, he says that, that he, he, we, we, should, we should be praying for what? For, for everyone, right? Verse two, for kings and all those who are in authority, right? And then in verse four, what does he say? He, that God wants who? Everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And then in verse six, he says that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all, all people. And then in verse seven, Paul says that he has been appointed as a herald to Gentiles. Now, what's, what's going on here? Here's what's going on. When Paul started the church in the city of Ephesus, that church was started for everyone. The gospel that Paul proclaimed was for everyone. Ephesus was a sprawling, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-racial city. People were, it was pluralistic. People were coming from all kinds of religious backgrounds. But the gospel, the good news that Paul proclaimed, that Christ died on the cross for sinners and that he was raised victoriously from the dead, that message was heralded to everybody in Ephesus. It was for everybody, not one group of people. And so there was a church that was planted in Ephesus. And there were people from all kinds of different backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, racial backgrounds, religious backgrounds, Jewish backgrounds, Gentile backgrounds. And they were coming together in that church. They had come to know Christ, their lives were being changed. And that church in Ephesus was one family of God that was a lighthouse for the gospel in that city. Here's what had happened. False teachers had come into that church and they were proclaiming a different message. They were saying that salvation is not for everybody. And especially they were against Gentiles. And, and Paul is saying here, no, 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 no. The, the message is for all people. It doesn't matter what background you are, you, are, you are from. This has been the heart of God from Genesis to Revelation. And so in the book of Genesis, when God first forms the Jewish people, right? You remember he calls Abraham in Genesis 12. Let's look at Genesis 12, 3. So God's forming the Jewish people here but he's saying here that from the Jewish people, there's going to come a savior who is going to bless 
all peoples, right? God says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And what? All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's the way the Bible begins in Genesis. How does it end in Revelation? Right, Revelation chapter seven. After this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from what? Every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the Lord. Now, what are we to do in the meantime? We're to herald that message to every person, all people. So in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of what? All nations, all nations, right? Nations there is the word ethne. It's where we get the word ethnic today in English, right? So we are to herald this good news to every tribe and tongue, every ethnic group, every culture, every, every tribe and tongue on earth, every people on earth, right? It's for all of them, right? Acts chapter one and verse Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This gospel is for the world. Not one group of people, all the peoples. Now, Paul is saying here to Timothy, you gotta get this church back to that gospel. (laughs) back to the gospel of proclaiming it to all peoples and certainly praying for all peoples. Okay, and and then in verse two, what does he say? For kings and for all those who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, the authorities, the governing authorities at this time were all Gentiles in first century Ephesus. So the false teachers had, 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 who had been leading that church before Timothy got there, they had not been leading the church to pray for their governing authorities because they were anti-Gentile. But the Bible is telling us that we are to pray for those kings and those who are in authority, governing authorities, whether we agree with them politically or not, or whether we share their faith or not, because even if they don't know God, God can influence them. God can impact the decisions that they make. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse one says this, a king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. Wow. You know, if, if you were to turn on your, your spigot, you know, you could take your hand and you could direct that stream of water. The Bible is saying that, that God can do that with the heart of a leader, a governing leader, whether that leader knows him or not. And we see all kinds of examples of this in the Old Testament, right? I mean, you, you know, people like uh, the Pharaoh under uh, jo- Joseph, and, uh, and Cyrus and uh, Artaxerxes and Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, there's a whole slew of pagan rulers, pagan kings in the Old Testament, but God's people pray for them and God impacts the decisions that they make. 
And we want those who are in governing positions to make good decisions because that impacts people. Right? What does he say here? He says, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Government, when it is functioning in a healthy way, provides for stability and order so that people can flourish and, you know, and live out their lives in peace. And listen, that is good for everybody, including Christians. So we should pray for those who are in leadership. Now, listen, as Christians, we know that this world is not our home. We know that the Bible describes us as strangers and exiles here on this, on this, in this fallen world, right? Philippians says that our ultimate citizenship is in heaven, but as strangers and exiles here, we are to pray for the place where God has, has, has put us I'm always uh, uh, captured by Jeremiah 29 and verse 7. Because in this passage, God's people are literally exiled. They're in a foreign land. But what does God tell them to do during your exile? He says, pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. So that is why we should pray for uh, governing authorities. Okay, and then he says in verses three and four, he says, this is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The false teachers were preaching a message that salvation was not for everybody. It was for the few people who would come into the, the secret knowledge that was found in these Old Testament genealogies and the myths that they had created uh, through, through them. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's not where it comes from. It doesn't come from the knowledge of some secret code that you have invented. Salvation comes through knowledge of the truth, the gospel that Christ died for sinners on the cross, that he rose from the dead, that we might have eternal life. That message is for everybody. Jesus says in, in Luke 19.10 that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. The heart of God is that he wants the lost to be found. And no matter what background you're coming from, you know, racially, religiously, you know, no matter what your past is, you know, you may think that I've done things in my past that are so bad that God's salvation is not for me. I've messed up too badly. Let me tell you something, it is for you. It is for you. No matter who you are, no matter what your background, there is no sin so deep that God's grace is not deeper still. The gospel changes lives. It, it, it makes all things new. It makes people new. It gives us new hearts. And people are brought together in the church as, as, as a new family from all kinds of different backgrounds. But we're, we're made one family in Christ. That's the heart of what Paul is talking about here. Look at verses five and, and six. He says, for there is one God 
and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. Now, scholars believe this may have been an early Christian creed that these Christians had had memorized because it's just a beautiful little summary about the person and the work of Christ. What is what do we see here in verse five about the person of Christ, okay? He says, for there's one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. So Christ is the God-man, 100% God, 100% man, and so therefore, he can be the mediator between God and man. So what does a mediator do? A mediator brings two estranged parties together. A mediator brings about reconciliation between two parties that have been estranged from one another. And because of our sin, we are estranged from God. Listen, God is holy. God hates sin. He cannot be in the presence of sin. He must punish sin. That's that's heavy news for us because the Bible says we're all sinners. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need a mediator. Great news. God has provided a mediator because Christ came and lived a sinless life And on the cross, he took our sins upon himself. And he did what? He paid the ransom. This is his work. Look at verse six. It says that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. He gave himself. He sacrificed himself. He loved us and gave himself for us as a ransom. Now, what's a ransom? A ransom is a payment. It's a a payment, and specifically in a first century Greco-Roman context, it was a payment that was made to secure the release of a slave, the freedom for a slave. What was our situation? Apart from Christ, we were slaves in bondage to sin and death without hope in this world. What did Christ do? Jesus paid it all. He paid that ransom on our behalf so that we can be forgiven and free. He secured our release so that we are no longer slaves, but now we can be adopted as God's very own children. So in Galatians chapter four and verse seven, The Bible says, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. In Christianity, we go from being slaves to sin and death to being children of God and heirs of God. And he says that that Christ, in verse 6, gave himself as a ransom for all. New Testament scholar uh, William Mounts says this about that. He says, because Christ's death for all people was so costly, to exclude people from the offer of salvation is especially 
horrendous. That's what the false teachers in Ephesus had been doing. And then, what does Paul say in verse seven? He says, for this I was appointed a herald, an apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the what? Gentiles. This is the key. The the false teachers were anti-Gentile. Paul is telling Timothy here, look, Timothy, you gotta bring this church back. Bring them back to the gospel. Bring them back to heralding the gospel to all people and praying for all people in their worship. So praying in worship. Second, peace in worship. Let's check out verse eight. He says, therefore I want the men in every place to pray, uh, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Now the point here in verse eight is not the posture of prayer, lifting up holy hands. That's fine. But the Bible talks about all kinds of postures in prayer, right? You see people praying on their knees, praying with hands lifted up, praying flat on their face before God. You can pray when you're sitting. You can pray when you're walking. You can pray when you're riding your bike. I mean, the point here is not the posture in prayer, but peace in prayer. He says to do it without anger and argument. What's happened is that due to all this false teaching and stuff that's going on in the church at Ephesus, people are quarreling. They're angry with one another. They're arguing with one another. They are at one another. And Paul says, no, 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 no. And your worship, no, you come together and you are to pray without that stuff, without anger and argument and quarreling. Look at, look at what the false teachers have done to this church. I want you to turn to chapter six and let's look at there at verses three through five. Chapter six and verses three through five. He says, if anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with a teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth. You ever been in a situation where I mean, they're just, it could, it could have been an athletic team that you were on, or, or maybe, it, maybe it was in the workplace, or you know, maybe, it, maybe in a, a classroom, or, you know, or maybe even in an unhealthy church environment, um, and there are people there that's got a separate agenda. <laughs> I was on a board like that one time. Um, I serve as a trustee with the International Mission Board, and it's one, we had meetings this past week, and wow, our, our board now is just so, everybody's pulling in the same direction. We've all got, there's only one agenda, and that's the advancement of the gospel, right? And, and our, our meetings are wonderful. I come back, and I feel like I've, you know, I've been to, you know, a, a you know, just, you, you, just the, the sense of, of godliness, and just come back lifted, lifted up by that. But I was a member of that same board back in the late 
2000s and it was a totally different makeup than on the board. And you know, out of the like 90 people that were on that board, and most of them had the right, everybody was there for the same, but then there were about maybe 10 people that had a private agenda. And I wanna tell you, they just wreaked havoc. And that's what can happen, right? On a a board, a a team, I I mean, you know, or church or whatever. Like, if you've got people that are just fomenting, fomenting some, you know, a a private, separate, it just wreaks havoc. Yeah, and that's what had happened in the church at at Ephesus, right? And when when people like that leave that group, it's just like a sigh of relief. Oh, you know, everybody's like, wow. I mean, the atmosphere just... (laughs) It just changes, right? Because everybody's pulling in the the same direction. Paul is saying to Timothy, you got to get back to that, right? There has been an atmosphere that had come into the church at Ephesus where people were just, they were at one another, arguing, angered. Paul's like, no, no. We deal with enough of that stuff in the world. When we come to church, You want people loving one another, right? Uh, Uplifting one another, encouraging one another. So he tells the guys who've been at one another, stop it. You come together, right? You love one another in the name of Christ. He's the the prince of peace. And you're to model that in the way that you treat uh, one another. So he says that in verse eight. And then in verses nine and 10, he says to uh, women here, he says um, in, verses, uh, in verses 9 and 10, he says, also the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with decency and with good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess to worship God. Now, uh, girls and ladies, you could go home and you could throw away your gold and your pearls and you could stop braiding your hair, but I'm telling you that would be an incorrect application of this passage because that's not the point. What's happening is that in the first century Greco-Roman world, these things were, were signs of, of ostentatious wealth. They were overt in your face, ostentatious, showy displays of wealth. They are not that today. Totally different meaning. But, but in that culture, they were. And so we know that in the early church, you had people that were very poor, right? In fact, a lot of the early Christians were slaves. And so what had happened in the church at Ephesus is that you had some people that were wealthy who were flaunting that in the face of those who did not have. Did that promote peace and unity? Of course not. Of course not. So Paul says, you you don't want to do that. Now, we know this was a problem in the church at Ephesus, again, because of something that he says in chapter 6. So turn to chapter 6 again, and let's pick it up uh, in verse 5, where we just left off a moment ago. He says there, he's talking about these false teachers in Ephesus. And he says that they imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. So these false teachers have been after money, right? And they have created a culture where people were all about displaying 
wealth. Continue on in in verse six. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, right? Not money itself, money's neutral, right? But the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So this was a problem in the church at Ephesus and this is what he's talking about here. Now, so there is an application here for us, okay? For, for all of us. And that is that as we get dressed each day, there's nothing wrong with dressing tastefully and attractively, but as you do that as a Christian, you wanna dress with something else. Good works. What does he say here? This is beautiful, right? He says, he says here um, in, verse, in verse 10 that we're to dress with good works. So as you put on your, your, your clothes in the morning, women and men for that matter, what else should you put on above all? Put on kindness. Put on, as Wilson was talking about earlier, the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Put those things on in the morning and walk out into the world. And you know what people will see? They'll see Christ, right? Matthew chapter five and verse 16, Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. We want people to see him. We wanna shine for him. That's what he's saying here. So praying in worship, peace in worship, and then preaching in worship. All right, let's look here at verses 11 and 12. He says, a woman is to learn quietly with full submission I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. Now, the context here is super, super important. In real estate, there's an expression. The most important thing in real estate is location, location, location. That's also the most important thing when it comes to biblical interpretation is context location 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 and especially in every passage you want to look at what comes right before it and what comes right after it okay so what comes before verses 11 and 12 he's been talking about public worship right he's talking about the worship service and then what comes immediately after it in in chapter two and and and, and, uh, chapter three and bear in mind that there were no chapter divisions when the Bible was written. That was all added later on, okay? No, just, just one flowing letter. No, no division here between, you know, uh, chapter two and verse 15 and chapter three and verse one. What does he say in chapter three and verse one? This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer or a pastor, elder, he desires a noble work. So the, the context here 
is that Paul is talking about the, the worship service of the church, and then he's talking about the role of the pastor within that worship, which is, to, which is the sermon, right? So the context here in verses 11 and 12 is that he's talking here, he's not talking about women speaking in general, he's talking about the sermon event in the worship service, which is typically done by a pastor. He is not saying that women should not ever speak in a worship service. And listen, we, have, we know that because we have to interpret scripture with scripture. There are lots of other scriptures where women are speaking in the worship service, and there's nothing wrong with it. So he's not, he's not saying that. He is also not making a commentary about the role of women in the larger uh, culture as far as leadership. It's not saying that. We, we, listen, the Bible talks about women uh, as queens, and one of Paul's co-workers at Philippi, uh, one of his colleagues in ministry was Lydia, who was a successful businesswoman. Uh, some of the greatest leaders in modern times, uh, one of my favorite heads of state, Margaret Thatcher, uh, one of my uh, heroes, great uh, head of state in Great Britain. Uh, Queen Elizabeth was a, a great woman uh, leader in many ways. He's not making any commentary here about uh, women leading in the larger culture. He's not saying that. He's also not talking about, he's also, also not putting limitations on women's involvement in the ministry of the church with the exception of the one office of pastor. When you look at the ministry of Christ in the Gospels, we saw this when we walked through Luke, the way that Jesus elevated the role of women. Women were learning as his disciples, which was revolutionary at the time. We see Mary you know, sitting at the feet of Christ in the posture of a, a learner, a disciple, right? Luke goes out of his way to mention time and time again that there, there were these group of women. They were like the, some of the main supporters of Christ and the advancement of the, of the gospel, right? Women were the... the, uh, the the, the, the last at the, the tomb and, the, and the, first, the first to announce the, the good news of the gospel to, uh, to, to people that Christ was, was risen. And when you look at the ministry of Paul, you know, he, he refers to women in his letters as his co-workers, mentions them by name. Uh, when it comes to maybe his, his, his masterpiece, the, the letter to the Romans, it is, he chooses, he, he entrusts the delivery of that letter to the church at Rome to a woman. And so women are his co-workers. They are deeply, actively involved in the church, in, in the ministry of the church, in all kinds of ways, with one exception. I believe that he's saying here that the office of, of pastor, elder, overseer, was held by men, was to be held by men. Now, why is that? Well, Within the family, you know, the Bible talks about the fact that, that husbands are to give leadership. It is not to be an authoritarian leadership, a domineering leadership, it's to be a servant leadership. 
Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives, how? As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. In other words, we're to lead in a sacrificing way, a servant way, in, in humility, right? That's the kind of leadership that we are to give in the family. The church is the family of God, And so next week, when we look at chapter three, he's gonna talk about the role of the pastor and the character of pastors. Pastors are to lead the family of God with that same kind of humble servant leadership. In our family of churches, we're a Southern Baptist church. In our confession of faith, in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, um, our, our confession of faith says this, While both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor, elder, overseer is limited to men as qualified by scripture. Now, different groups of Christians have different views on this subject. But we need to understand that for basically 2,000 years of church history, (laughs) what you see on screen was the view that was held by Orthodox Christians everywhere. Does that automatically make it right? No. But we need to understand there's wisdom in taking and looking at what Bible-believing Christians have, have held to through the centuries. And, 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 and looking at that with humility, that's a wise thing. Because, you know, when it comes to technology, It might be true that the newest is the coolest and the latest is the greatest. When it comes to theology, old is good. The wisdom of the centuries, of the generations that have come before us is is good. And so basically, you know, the the view that was held by Orthodox Christians for almost 2,000 years, up until like the mid of the 20th century, was basically a complementarian view of gender. Now, what is that? It means that men and women are to complement one another. The scripture teaches that we are created, men and women, equal in value and in personhood, in every way before the Lord. Men are not superior to women, that that is not biblical. We are both, men and women are created in the image of God. That means that we're equal in value and in personhood before him. But, we're different, we're different. We are made to complement one another. And that means that sometimes we are given differing roles in the family and in the family of God. Now listen, we're living in a culture that wants to obliterate all differences in gender, in men and women. But I believe that the biblical view is far more beautiful than sort of a flattened view of gender. God made us to complement one another. Now, 
Let's look at verses 13 and 14. He says here, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. Now, at first glance, this looks like women are being blamed for the fall. <laughs> you know, that the woman's at fault and therefore she's being punished for that. Or, you know, that somehow because Eve was deceived that, you know, women are more gullible and less able to leave. That is not the case. That is not what is being said here. None of that is being said. What Paul's talking about here is the order of creation. What happens in Genesis 3? Genesis 2 and 3. So, God creates the man. He tells Adam, he says, all of the garden is yours. You can eat from any tree in this garden. It is all yours to enjoy except one. And then he creates the woman as a compliment to Adam, you know, to be his helper. They love one another. They, they love God. There's perfect harmony and fellowship. There's order in creation. What happens? Disorder. <laughs> Disorder comes into the world. And both the man and the woman are at fault. So Adam. Adam was the one who was given the responsibility first. He was to protect his wife. He was to love his wife. He was to care for his wife. He was to be there for her. Where is Adam? As Eve is being tempted, he is nowhere in the picture. He's not around. He's abdicated his responsibility to lovingly lead her and care for her and protect her. He's nowhere to be found. And then, after Eve uh, takes, uh, takes it and she offers it to Adam and, and he takes it, you know, when God confronts Adam about it, what does Adam do? He blames his wife and then he blames God. He says, the woman that you put here with me, she gave it to me in IA, blames Eve, blames God. Total abdication of responsibility and leadership on Adam's part. But Eve is, not, is also not without fault because rather than insisting that Adam assume his position of leadership, she usurps that. She takes the initiative, right? Takes the fruit, offers it to him. And so what you've got here is just, there's disorder on every level. Now, Paul's bringing this over into the situation, right, at Ephesus. I love what New Testament scholar Doug Moo says about this. He says, verse 14, in conjunction with verse 13, is intended to remind the women at Ephesus that Eve was deceived by the serpent in the garden precisely in taking the initiative over the man whom God had given to be with her and to care for her. So he's saying here, women, Instead of trying to get into the one role in the church, for men, I want you to lean in a role that cannot be done by men. 
Look at verse 15. He says, um, but she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. Now, he's obviously, when he says they can be saved through childbearing, he's obviously not saying that, you know, in any sense that having children contributes to your ultimate salvation, your right, being right before God. We know that all people, men, women, boys, girls, every person, there's only one way to be right with God, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's what Paul teaches everywhere in his letter. So look, we know he doesn't mean that. That would contradict everything he ever said about salvation. He's also not saying here that all women need to have kids. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul holds up the, the beauty of singleness. He says it's a beautiful thing for men or women. If God calls you to singleness where you can devote all of your life just exclusively to the things of the Lord, that's a wonderful thing. This past week at our trustee meetings, we honored Dr. Rebecca Naylor, who was a, a surgeon uh, who went to live in Bangalore, India in 1973 as a young woman. And uh, she ended up becoming the head of that hospital and, and uh, the school of nursing there is named after her. She's retiring after 50 years of service, which she lived out all that time as a single woman. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful calling. And obviously sometimes even if you are married, not everybody's gonna have kids. And, and, and God, God has good things for you, whatever your situation, right? Married, single, with kids, without kids. There's beautiful things that God can do, unique things that God can do, whatever our situation there. So he, doesn't, he obviously doesn't mean that you know, if you're a woman, you gotta have kids. That's not the point. What is he saying here? What does he mean about salvation? All right, I want us to look at Philippians chapter two and verse 12. He says, Paul says there, therefore my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean that our works contribute to our salvation. That means that as we live the Christian life, we're working out what God has already worked in, right? We've already been given salvation as a gift. Now we're living that out, right? That's working itself out in our lives, right? Ephesians 2 and verses eight through 10. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. But then what does he say? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, right? Not by our works, but when we are saved, God has good works for us to do. Now, if you're a woman and a mom, you have been given a good work to do that only a woman can do. Because men cannot bear children or give birth to children. 
That is one of the most important things in the world. One of the most, one of those strategic good works that any person could do. And he's saying here, women, only, only you can do that. And so, and lean into that, he's saying. If you're a mom, lean into that. I mean, we live in a world where people just want to ignore and downgrade the value of motherhood. The Bible says the opposite. It says, moms, lean into that. Lean into your role as a mother. The influence that you have, the gift of bearing children, giving birth to children, loving kids in a way that only a mom can do. Lean into that good work. And there's something else here. And I don't want us to miss it. This is really beautiful. What does Paul have on the brain as he writes this passage? Really important when you're reading Paul's letters. Think about what's, what's on his mind, you know? Well, when Paul writes this passage, one thing that's on his mind is the incarnation. God becoming man, verse five, right? The incarnation, Christ coming into the world. How's that happen? Birth of a baby, right? And then he's got Genesis three on his mind, right? All this imagery here is from Genesis 3. He's got Genesis 3 on the brain. What happens after all of the disorder and the chaos with Adam and Eve and everything in Genesis 3? What happens? God comes into this chaotic, hopeless situation with the first promise of the gospel. And it's found in Genesis 3.15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God is saying here that the Savior is going to come. The Savior who is going to crush the head of the serpent is going to come through what? Through the birth of a baby to a woman. And that baby is going to grow and live a sinless life, the life that we could never live and then die on the cross, the death we should have died so that we can be reconciled to God and we can be adopted as his children. Galatians chapter four and verses four and five. But when the right time came, God sent his son, what? Born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. So Christ comes into the world, right? Born as a baby in Bethlehem. Born of a woman. He lives a life of total obedience to the law of God. And because he did that on the cross, he could buy freedom for all of us 
so that we can be reconciled to God and adopted as his very own children. Don't you want to be a child of God? That happens through Christ. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you for the beauty of the gospel. We thank you that we in Christ have been adopted as sons and daughters of the King. Lord, we thank you that you take us in the gospel from being slaves to being your very own children and heirs of everything that comes with the beautiful salvation that you have given to us. Lord, we want to live that out. And we want to herald this good news to the world, to everybody, to every tribe and tongue, to every person, no matter what their background. And listen, you today, I don't care who you are, I don't care what your past is, this good news of the gospel is for you. There's new life for you. There's eternal life for you provided through Christ. Turn to Jesus and trust him today. Lord, we thank you for your saving work. Fill us with your spirit as we sing about that right now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you wanna spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. 